0: Amen. Please be seated. It is good to be back in the pulpit after uh, a week, uh, two weeks ago, being away from my son John's wedding. And last week, the uh, special guests in celebration of our new associate pastor. Uh, and I hope you haven't forgotten that we're preaching through 2 Corinthians. So let's open God's word to 2 Corinthians and chapter 9 today. And we'll be looking at the whole chapter. Uh, We put most of the chapter in the bulletin, the scripture text, but we'll be looking at the whole of it. And for those who are worshiping from home and joining our live stream or watching the video later on, a a special greeting to you. We invite you uh, to come and join us. Uh, The church is uh, warm and welcoming and we'd love to see you. And may God sustain you until we do meet. I'll be reading the whole of the chapter, and you'll find out that Paul continues to talk about this collection, this giving, this special offering that he is helping coordinate from all the, the Gentile churches, as it were, around uh, Asia Minor and in Greece and uh, ancient Macedonia, which is going to go all the way back to Jerusalem, to the poor Jewish Christians there. Uh, chapter nine, Second Corinthians, verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. All sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and maintain your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thus far we read in his holy word. May the Lord bless his word to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. The sermon title this morning is, Why Be a Cheerful Giver? We, we're familiar with the, the phrase about how God loves a cheerful giver. I wanted to turn it into a question, and I know when you do that, especially in the sermon title, everybody wants to know the answer, or thinks they know the answer. Certainly, if you're like me, and you've taught the scriptures to your children, you've reminded them the very best answer to almost any why question that we read in the Bible. You remember? Why should we do this or do that? The answer, because the Bible says to do this or do that. Because the Bible says. That's not always satisfying to everyone, but it's clear, and it should not be overlooked. Overlooked. This is the word of God. This isn't a pep talk or a Ted's talk or the wisdom of your Uncle Bob. This is the word of God. And it lets us know what we should be doing, what God wants us to do, what God delights in and what he does not delight in. And that should drive us, that should lead us, that should encourage us and direct us all on its own. But God made us with this uh, ability to understand and be motivated in a variety of ways, not just sheer obedience because the Bible says it. So God does give us even more encouragements to be cheerful givers. And he does give us uh, great motives. And we'll get to that. I'm I'm, going to save that for our third heading today, the other answers to this why question. Before we get to that, we need to ask, what sort of giving are we talking about, and how do we go about that giving? And then I'm going to end. Maybe it'll be the climax of of why we should be cheerful givers. Okay, that's where we're headed. So first, let's look at this chapter as a whole, and indeed other things that Paul has written, to see who are the various recipients... For Christian giving. That's a big word. Boys and girls, you know what a recipient is? That means somebody who gets the money. Who gets the money when Christians are doing the giving? Maybe you weren't thinking about that today. Paul has one particular audience in mind here. But let's also talk about the the broad. There are four broad categories for all Christian giving. So let's take a look. Because I don't want you to think that you just give money away to any Tom, Dick, or Harry. Okay. Okay. If you're going to give, who do you give to? First, for the saints. That's what we read. That's what Paul's talking about in chapter 9, verse 1. It is superfluous. Isn't that a great word? And to find it in the Bible, superfluous. It means it's not necessary for me to keep going over it, but to write to you about the ministry for the saints. The ministry for the saints. He's talking about this collection this thing that's been going on for a long time with a lot of churches across the land and they traveled by foot and it took many, many months to assemble a whole boatload of money. It's a big deal. And they have multiple men watching over that and seeing that. And it's for the saints. Maybe that's a little vague. So let's go back to Paul's first comment about this group of recipients back in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. The previous letter, 1 Corinthians, chapter 16 and verse 1, as he's wrapping up that earlier letter, he talks for a verse or two about this collection. 16.1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, where is Galatia? You might have a map in the back of your Bible. That's like Turkey, Asia Minor. So that's a broad region. Ephesus, Galatia, A lot of Laodicea, all these churches that are up in that area. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you, Corinthians, on that Greek peninsula going into the Aegean Sea, you've got Corinth there, you also are to do, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to... Jerusalem if it seems advisable that I should go also they will accompany me so Paul is collecting across these planted churches money to send back to Jerusalem well why is he doing that Christianity as it were began in Jerusalem and sprung up in Antioch and that's where the missionaries went out to the known world. It was the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were set apart as the first missionaries. In the city of Jerusalem, uh, uh, Peter and other uh, apostles were spreading the word and being arrested and persecuted, but persevering. And the church was built a couple thousand on this day, a couple thousand on that day. That's where it all began. But persecution struck. If you've read the book of Acts, persecution and Christians spread throughout the known world. Well, they were carrying can we say for the inner city Christians, the Christians under attack in Jerusalem, not the home base of the, the zealous Jews who were persecuting the Jewish Christians. Let's send some money back uh, to, to our home base, as it were. And that, in other chapters, other places, that was uh, a design for the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians to have greater unity, a sense that we're in this together And that those who had something could share with those who had less. All those principles. So the number one recipient, at least in this historic context, for Christian giving is other believers. uh, For other churches and for the advancement of, of churches, as we'll see in a moment. It is for the saints. In other places, Paul talks about the recipients of your money as well. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 and following, because another category for Christian giving is for those who teach and preach the gospel. Those who teach and preach the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 11, we read this. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. When Paul was in Corinth, he didn't collect a salary, as it were. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So uh, recipients of your giving are those who teach and preach and minister the gospel among believers. That's God's design. It was practiced in a way in the synagogue system and here explicitly among Christians. And Paul taught in another place about Oxen needing to to eat while they tread out the grain. Not going back to that verse. Paul brings this up again when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5. Paul writing as as an apostle to a younger pastor. And Timothy was someone he knew quite well. 1 Timothy 5 uh, verses 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So that's a second category of recipient, but there's a couple more. The third category is for missionaries. For missionaries, as I alluded to earlier, the church in Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas and sent them out. And churches along the way would partner with these missionaries. For instance, when Paul went to Philippi and planted a church at Philippi, he uh, soon found himself being supported by the church in Philippi as he moved on. In his itinerant missionary work, and you can check the map of Paul's missionary travels, churches he planted and founded, but then saw them off and went to to go plant elsewhere, they would contribute to his support. For instance, when Paul writes back to the Philippians... In Philippians 1, verse 5, he he gives them thanks. Um, He's thankful for them, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What was that partnership? They sent him money for his support. They even sent people to check on him. So it wasn't just monetary, it was a robust form of support. When Christians are called to give their money, it's for the saints... It's for those who professionally, I guess you would say, teach and preach. And it's for the support of missionaries and mission work. That makes sense to those of us who have been involved in churches over the years. Well, there's a fourth category, and I think we need to mention this as well, just in the broad context of who receives Christian giving. And it's for those in need. Those in need. Uh, Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. First, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And you know the Sermon on the Mount is uh, a very explicit teaching time of Jesus to his uh, disciples as they take up the the call of uh, living Christian lives and serving others. Um, And in chapter 6, he's going to be talking about how we practice our righteousness And he doesn't want us to practice uh, like those Pharisees or the people who are hyper-religious to be hyper-religious. So he's drawing distinctions. Isn't it interesting, before he gets to prayer, how we practice our righteousness, he talks about this topic. Chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Thus, when you give to the needy. He's talking about money when you practice your righteousness. Okay, let's hear what Jesus says. aspects about how our giving should be quiet unassuming not making a big show of it and our giving to those in need is with the expectation that God will see God our father will be pleased and he'll reward us we'll talk about rewards in a in a minute but the category who's receiving here it's those who have needs And it's primarily those in the community, the community of faith first and foremost. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. That's a lot of flipping around. This letter to the Ephesians has a lot to say about church life. And in Ephesians chapter 4, we read uh, this in verse uh, 28, I believe it is. i out of practice turning. Uh, he's giving directions for new life as a Christian. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. The thief who's been converted and now a member of the church. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The fourth category of recipients of the giving of Christians are those in need in our community. And I would just say that community is defined in concentric circles. It begins with your family, then your extended family, your church family, certainly. It's explicit in, in the New Testament. Your church family needs provision. But then there's the community of those around that. If they're in your community. This is not a New Testament groundbreaking idea. This was found in the Old Testament, even in the book of Deuteronomy. There the the law of God prescribed this you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall be not begrudging when you give to him, because of this for because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. That's from Deuteronomy 15. The believer in God, the person of God, the Christian, is to have an open-hearted, helpful attitude to your brother's, And to the needy in the land. If someone has come into your community, come into close proximity. And just as a footnote here, if someone in the community calls this church for help, they need some money. What do we do? We invite them into our community. We say, uh, I'm not going to come over to your house today and give you money. But I invite you to come on Sunday to meet our people to be where we gather and and talk with the deacons. Number one, the preacher doesn't give out money. I don't have access to the church benevolence fund directly. I don't. We invite them to come on a Sunday morning and to meet our people and to share our need. And after the service, you, you may actually see the elders and deacons take someone who's visiting into a side room and we talk not only about how much money they need, but how we can help them as a community and there's so much help to be found here, networking for childcare or job leads or piecemeal work. I mean, the community can offer so much help. They don't know that. So we try to invite them into our community. Of course, we have ulterior motives to invite them to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the four areas of uh, Christian giving, where the, the recipients are very broadly uh, for other believers, uh, for those who teach, uh, for mission work, and for those with particular needs. And I certainly uh, say as pastor to the people of Clifton Park Community Church, I do commend you for over the, the nearly 30 years I've been here. This, these areas have been recipients of your giving, and I commend you. May we keep on the course of that. It's biblical. Second heading this morning is this. What are general directions here in Paul's writing for our giving? How do we give? Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that's our home base today. After Paul talks about the ministry for the saints, the collection, verse 2, he says, "'For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia.'" Macedonia, saying that acacia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. One of the important principles Paul highlights here, and he says it's superfluous, but he keeps chatting for a few verses saying, readiness is really important. Your readiness to give is really important. I went to university uh, back in uh, Wisconsin, and a little campus up in northern Wisconsin, so we had some of the coldest weather of any campus in America, a whole week below zero once. Um, and uh, we had some lovely churches, and a lot of the churches would send a bus around to campus and collect us so that we could get to church. And little Salem Baptist Church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, my first real church as a believer, Uh, was so welcoming to college students that they set up an adoption program, not a legal adoption program, but they would have families that are willing to connect with college students, adopt them, and they would uh, make a big deal of it. You'd be paired up, and what would this adoptive family do? They'd bring you home and feed you. Uh, If you were stuck in the dorms on a holiday, they would welcome you to their home. They would do things. There would be a connectedness and I still remember one couple that went well beyond just being adoptive parents. They had an open door. If, if you haven't been adopted or your adoptive parents aren't feeding, you could always come over to uh, Helen's, um, oh, the last name flew out of my head. It's an interesting couple because his name was Shirley and her name was Helen. Uh, an older couple in their retirement, they had the smallest house, smaller than one of our classrooms, and they would typically have six or seven college students around their little table with a card table for overflow more students show up she'd be out there microwaving some additional food and it spoke volumes to me they were ready they had a meal cooking for more than just the two of them knowing that they were going to be bringing some college students home and if somebody didn't accept their invitation you know what they kept asking They would find somebody to come home because they were ready to exercise a gift of hospitality. They were ready to be giving. In glory, they will be far ahead of me. What a dear couple. And they kept a photo album of all these students, hundreds of students over the decades, international students. But part of their ministry's success was that they were ready I've heard of that less frequently in church life, that someone cooks a big Sunday dinner hoping to bring a visitor home from church. But it's a rare and endangered practice, sadly. Are you ready to give? I know a couple of benevolent fellows who carry a Couple hundred dollar bills with them to meet the need. If the Spirit moves right on the spot and to make a difference, hand out some money. God bless them. These aren't wealthy people. Readiness is a biblical principle. And I'm sensing that most of us are uh, blushing for our lack of readiness. But that's what he talks about. He says, I know, I know you've been talking about being ready. I just want to make sure you're ready. I'm going to send Titus and these other guys along to make sure arrangements are good. Because we don't want to be humiliated when that opportunity comes. We don't want to pull our hair out and say, oh, I wasn't ready. Because God's commanded us to be ready, to be generous, to be givers. That's what it says here. The previous instructions from 1 Corinthians, do you remember when we read that? It said, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. That calls for planning, advanced preparations. What do we keep in the freezer? What do we have in our wallet or purse? What do we have at our disposal when the Spirit prompts us to act? Are we ready? Be ready. A second general direction that comes right from this text, down in verse 5, it talks about uh, to be willing. Um, <clears throat> he, he knows their willingness, and, and in fact, they've stirred up others by their, their readiness and, and willingness. And down in, in verse 5 here, he said, I, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction exaction is one of those words it 's like taxes where they take it from you'm uh, not going to talk about taxes, but Paul says you are said you 'd be ready and you want to be willing there 's more than meets the eye here in verse five <clears throat> to arrange in advance for the gift e s v says uses the word gift there as it translates it but it does have a footnote I don't know if you read the footnotes I encourage you to always pay attention but the word gift is literally blessing and and you've heard of a eulogy the Greek words you know some Greek right you for good logos for words a eulogy is good words this is a this is a blessing as though you were speaking the Lord bless you that's the word here for this gift and he says you need to be willing to give it, to be a blessing. Something begrudgingly given is not a blessing. People feel guilty. I had to learn that early on in my married life. <clears throat> when uh, we're eating and I'm finishing fast and, and uh, there's an extra piece or my wife has not finished. I said, are you going to eat all of that? You, you can picture a guy saying something like that. And just her generous spirit, she would always say, oh, you can have some. She would give up what was in her mouth to her family to to feed them. So I've learned not to impinge upon her willingness. It's overflowing willingness. But Paul is explicit here that Christian giving has to be heartfelt and genuine. Your attitude and the spirit in which you give matters to our God. It should not be like a visit to the dentist. The dentist says, I'm going to have to drill and you're resisting him. And you'd fight back if he didn't have your mouth clamped. An extraction and an exaction sound similar, so you won't forget that. Christian giving should not be like pulling teeth. And we remember from the previous passage, it shouldn't be for show. Okay, I'll write a really big check, just make sure everybody knows. Be ready, be willing, and here, verses 6 and 7, you know this is coming, be generous, be generous. Let's read those verses again, verses 6 and 7. The point is this, Paul Paul touches, really, on the heart of the matter here, doesn't he? Whoever sows sparingly, let me pause this doesn't talk about needle and thread sowing. Boys and girls, you understand that. S.O.W. is what the farmer does. He takes a handful of seed and he plants it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap. That means at harvest time, take up sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It needs to be generous giving, not sparingly, miserly. If you 've ever done any planting, you know there are different ways to do it. I think the only thing I did was plant one bean seed and raise a bean plant. I don 't know if that's sixth grade or fourth grade. In your little coffee cup, he push the little seed down, covered it up with dirt, and hopefully nurture it, and it sprouts. But how do you plant a field? The farmer doesn't go by and push each seed in carefully and take his measure and get it 12 inches apart from the other seed. In the ancient world, before they had machines, they would reach into their sack, they'd grab a handful of seed, and they'd swing their arm in an arc, and the seed would go flying. Maybe here in the Northeast, we have to think about spreading salt on the ice in our driveways. You take the cup and you spray it so it spreads and lands. As that seed spreads out, you're going to a lot of places, not just here, 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 here. So you're being generous, you're being bountiful. And you know what? Some of the seeds way over there or behind that other rock that you didn't think about, they may sprout. You may get a bigger harvest than you thought because you were so generous in your sowing. That's what he says here. And the words are a beautiful arrangement to make an explicit contrast between sparingly and bountifully. And again, I'm not going to go through the Greek of it, but if I said it in English to match that word order, it would come across like this Sows sparingly, sparingly will reap. And those two big verbs are side by side for the adjectives. Sows bountifully, bountifully will reap. God's inspired word is emphasizing those two styles to put them at contrast. To give us a principle that we need to be generous. You find sowing and reaping throughout the Old Testament a biblical law as it were. This is the way things work in this world that God has made. Sowing and reaping are connected. In the New Testament it's even expanded to spiritual sowing and reaping. If you sow to the spirit you reap from the spirit. If you sow to the flesh you reap from the flesh. Meaning if you indulge your temptations and you sin a lot you're gonna suffer a lot. If you sow to the spirit and say no to those things and you, you, you pursue godliness and virtues, you're going to reap virtues. Sowing and reaping spiritually was related to other sowing and reaping. In the Old Testament, some of the examples of that uh, overall come from uh, the Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. One gives freely, there's an abundance of giving, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. That means lack. I bet Jesus knew that proverb. And that was included in his words about sowing and reaping through his apostle. Verse 25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and, who, and one who waters will himself be watered. You see that connection, the giving and the taking, the sowing and the receiving? Proverbs 22, verse 9. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. The Bible's pretty clear about the need to be generous. We looked at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus uh, talking about our our giving, uh, how it should be uh, willing. And uh, in Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount, remember Luke has uh, his own account, and it's found in chapter 6 and in other places. He has the Lord's teaching recorded there as this. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, some people have heard that verse in the context of a health and wealth sermon. You give. You write me a check today, God will give you tenfold in your bank account tomorrow. That kind of nonsense. Run. If you're listening to a preacher who talks that way, run. Shut off the TV. Stop the video. Our giving is not so that we receive. That sounds more like gambling rather than godly obedience. We give to the four recipients and we give knowing that God will take care of us. That's giving by faith. And we want to give by faith, not for greed. It's interesting, a hundred years ago, James Denny, the Scottish pastor said, charity in a real sense is an investment, not a casting away of money. These acts of giving is an investment, spiritually and otherwise. And he goes on to say, for God, money is nothing to him but an index to your soul. You know, when you go to the doctor's office or urgent care, what's one of the first things they do? They check your vitals, right? They check your pulse, your blood pressure, your temperature. One way God assesses our spiritual health as he looks at our giving and not just our monetary giving the giving of our time the giving of our attention the giving of ourselves are we living for this world or the world to come money an in index to the soul that could be frightening for many Americans to hear well let's get to the, the final heading this morning The gracious benefits of Christian giving. This is where we answer a little bit more clearly that question. Why be a cheerful giver? We know who should get our money. We've had some guidance on being willing and ready and generous in our giving. But why? Why beyond just simple obedience to the Bible? Well, there's a whole category of personal benefits. And then there are benefits to the church. Let's take those two up first. There are personal benefits to being a cheerful giver right number one I'll just I'll just mention two personal benefits number one God loves cheerful givers why be a cheerful giver God will love that he will look on you with joy and he'll love on you I love watching my adult children Do those very things I hoped they would do. We tried to train them to do, and the people we wanted them to be, to see them doing those things and beyond. It's beyond us. It's a a work of grace. There is such joy. And I, I saw, for instance, my four sons interacting at John's wedding recently, and I just filled with joy. I had to send them this long text. I'm not a long texter, I don't think. This long text at what joy I have, how much more I love them when I see them bending over, going the extra mile with their brothers and with others. There isn't that brotherly competition at the wedding. They're in it for each other, and that brought me great joy. Can you imagine what your father thinks when he sees you being screwed or miserly? Our God loves a cheerful giver. Experience more of God's love and live for His pleasure by being a cheerful giver. I, if you're uncertain, just just speak to the Lord about this. Lord, do you want me to be a giving person? Do you want me to be a generous, cheerful giver? He doesn't want you necessarily to sell all your possessions and live on the street. Don't go overboard. Don't have some kind of bizarre reaction. Get the counsel of your elders, your family, but be willing, be ready, be bold in your giving, and God will love that. God will love that. It it shows that we are like our Father in heaven when we're a cheerful, generous giver. Isn't it the case that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You read what John's written in his letters, how much before we loved God, God loved us and gave his son for us. We'll know the love of God. The personal benefits certainly begin there, and that's a big one. But Paul goes on to talk about other personal benefits here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's a benefit there. And I don't need to shout to make it known. The the text itself shouts. How many times do you see the word all there? And who's the one who's doing it? God is able to make all things at your disposal to serve him. What's the personal benefit of being a, a cheerful giver, a generous giver? You will have all that you need. And I've heard someone say, whether for good or ill, in their context, you can't outgive God. I think that's true. But don't play games with God, don't treat him like a vending machine, don't go to all those places you know aren't what he intends. But if you live the Christian life and if you aim to please him and serve him and love others and you go the extra mile and you give generously for the things that God's word directs you and his spirit prompts you, you will have what you need. I read it in the Bible. I read it right here. He uses the word sufficiency. God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is a spiritual transaction. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that's a literal physical provision. Don't spiritualize the whole verse. Why why would I say that this verse and these benefits, this sufficiency refers to outward things? Well, verse 10 in the context here. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. He's using the analogy. The farmer who works hard and spreads his seed it generously reaps. And he's talking about that physical process. And the diligent farmer is, is supplied. The parallel to the believers: is if you use your tangible possessions to bless others, God will have you with a sufficient, tangible set of possessions. It can be open to abuse if someone takes this, twists this, and goes their own worldly way with it. But we can't deny God's encouraging promise. There's a personal benefit if you're a cheerful giver. I I only started appreciating tipping at restaurants after one of my kids worked as a waitress for a while. And... It got to be, it's gotten to be fun. It's gotten to be a, a way of blessing, especially good service. I try to do my part when the service isn't as good. But it just, I have a little bit more. They're working so hard. It's a mindset I'm referring to there. When the Spirit prompts us, may we be obedient. Because God will supply what we need. Now, that's kind of a big claim to say that God will, will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. And you will abound for every good work. That's a lot of superlatives. So what does the apostle do? And he's writing to the wealthy Corinthians, lest we forget. He's not writing to those on Skid Row. He's writing to some wealthy people here. But he supports it with a scripture and when you're reading, especially in the epistles, and they're making demands, and there are certain imperatives given, uh, and then they quote scripture, you know that it's so important they want you to see its grounding in the word of God in other places. And time today for, keeps me from going into length. This is from Psalm 112. It's verse 9. It's near the end of Psalm 112. Psalm 112 is about a generous, godly man who fears God. And he sows bountifully. He lives his life to the glory of God. And he has no lack. And so when this is quoted, the people who hear it, if they know the Old Testament scriptures, will remember the godly man of Psalm uh, One twelve. It was a wisdom psalm, a psalm of instruction uh, with the psalm right next to it. It was an acrostic, so it was meant for instruction. This guy is an example we should be following in his generosity. He was generous and godly. The two go together, and he didn 't suffer unduly for it. His righteousness continues forever. Boy, that goes beyond sufficiency in material things. Your rightness with God is secure when you live by faith and you give by faith, believing that God is good and he rewards those who diligently seek him. Personal benefits. I have to hurry to finish here. Um, There are church-wide benefits very quickly. Verse 12 of our main chapter, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12, alludes to that. For if these Corinthians get their act together and participate in this offering, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Uh, Needs will be met. What are the benefits of being a cheerful giver? Why should I do it? Well, needs will be met in the church among other believers. And if we read on to verse 14, we see that their affections will grow. The church will be knit together. So he's talking to the givers about the recipients, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. If you act in grace, those who receive will be, have, find themselves knit together with you. They'll be praying for you. There's a relationship that's formed. I love how our church, as certain missionaries that we've given to fairly generously, we have a great relationship with them. And our hearts are with them and theirs with us church-wide benefits. And another reason for being a cheerful giver, besides our personal benefits or the church benefits, there are Godward benefits. Glory to God happens. There are more people thanking God, it says in the text, verses 11 and 12. And verse 13, they're giving glory to God. Do we see that in verse 13? By their approval of this service... They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. You profess to be Christians in Corinth, you send those Christians in Jerusalem a generous gift, willingly and ready at the right time, they will see that the gospel is bearing fruit and they will give thanks to God for you. That's how the church works. God is thanked and God receives glory. In closing, let me remind you of three specific things. Be awestruck at God's gift to you. Verse 15 at the end, it deserves a sermon unto itself. Paul creates a new Greek word. This word that we may assume existed, it's not found in Greek literature of the day. Paul makes it. He makes this compound word. Thanks be to God, verse 15, for his inexpressible gift. It's just beyond describing. He's referring to the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation, so rich and free. God has done that for us. I love what missionary C.T. Studd said, if Jesus Christ was God and he gave his all for me, no sacrifice on my part is too great. And off to the mission field he went. Be awestruck at God's gift to you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today is a day of good news for you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him, it doesn't say, whosoever cleans up their life and is worthy of being a Christian, whoever memorizes the Bible, there aren't do's and don'ts. It just says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life everlasting. God so loved the world. What a gift. Know Christ, receive Christ, repent and receive Christ. If you're clinging to yourself and your own life, you can't receive him. You have to let go of that. You repent of being your own Lord and Savior And say, Lord, I receive the gift of Jesus Christ. His righteousness to be my righteousness. It will change your life. Be awestruck at God, the first giver. And then be focused. Secondly, be focused on those biblical priorities for giving. Notice the four recipients. Don't just be willy-nilly on your giving. And don't just maybe wait till you're in the mood. There needs to be a readiness, a willingness, a thoughtfulness, a plan and intentional giving. We're coming out of the season of COVID. Our economy is goofy. There's war in the world. A lot of things are uncertain about the remainder of 2022, but may this be certain. The Christian's giving on God's agenda will be blessed. God will take care of you if you take care to obey and to please him. Be focused on those things and pray for wisdom, don't just make it an emotional thing, a feeling thing. this feels right. Pray about it, study it, consult and be generous. And finally, don't forget, but believe God's law of sowing and reaping. And that might be a scary thing. Remember, God is a God of a grace. He can forgive you for sowing in the wrong direction, but as you sow, expect that God will reap. God keeps His promises. God will preserve and protect and defend his people. But don't forget, sowing and reaping. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth about things as common as money, things as important as money. But it's not the most important thing. Father, give us a biblical view of all these things. May we be better worshipers through our giving, May we be better Christians by our providing for the needs of brothers and sisters and and better uh, workers in the kingdom by supporting mission work near and far. Father, may we serve you well with all our resources. May your spirit be at work to bring this about, and may it be uh, a cause for thanksgiving and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.